You know, I grew up in an independent Baptist family, which means I'm still a recovering legalist. Not quite hellfire and brimstone, but close. We were faithful to go to church every Sunday morning, Sunday school and church, Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings. I regularly participated in Tuesday or Thursday night visitation. Many of you don't know what that is. When we would either visit people who had visited the church or randomly knock on doors, canvas the neighborhoods to invite people to come to church and then, of course, share the gospel. In fact, uh, later after Bible college, an independent Baptist college in Missouri, my first job was a one-year internship at Calvary Baptist Church in Junction City, Kansas. One of my daily, daily responsibilities was to visit new people in the area. You see, it was an army town right outside of Fort Riley, so we had lots of movement, lots of people moving in, moving out. I would actually get a list of names and addresses from the utility company. They would actually <laughs> give it to me in print, print form, uh, give me the names of the, the new sign-ups, and I would knock on the doors of new people to the area, invite them to church, and then, of course, share the gospel. And I became quite proficient. Of course, this was over 35 years ago, and getting people to pray a prayer at the front door was not all that difficult. In fact, we had a Christian school at our church, and the high school students would wait till I returned to see how many people I had led to the Lord that day. It would not be an exaggeration to say that I had dozens of people, perhaps hundreds, pray a prayer. I would always finish uh, the visit after the prayer with 1 John chapter 5, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Have you believed on the name of the Son of God? Yes. Then don't let anyone ever tell you that you're not saved. I left giving them an assurance of salvation and, of course, notching my belt. Not condemning the method per se, but I do wonder how truly effective it was. You see, the church that year did not grow by those dozens or hundreds. And I wonder how many people I told, you're saved because you prayed a prayer, and they actually weren't. And you say, but, but I thought that's all that there was to becoming a Christian, praying a prayer, asking Jesus to forgive you and to come into your heart. And, and that's true. But is that all there is to the Christian faith and subsequent assurance? I prayed a prayer, so I'm in. The practice, by the way, mirrored my own conversion experience and <laughs> subsequent doubt, wondering, lack of assurance. You see, I was saved at the age of 10 at Ocean Springs Baptist Church in Biloxi, Mississippi. I know I'm giving you lots of states. Grew up in the Air Force. We moved a lot. An independent Baptist church, they preached a lot about long hair, short skirts, and rock music. And of course, they faithfully uh, preached the gospel. They did and invited people to respond at the weekly altar call. I, I remember responding one Sunday, was baptized shortly thereafter, and I was saved because in that movement, there was a lot of confidence placed in a prayer, remembering the date of your spiritual birthday. You would write the date in the front of your Bible lest you forget. 
Again, I am not condemning a method. I want you to understand that I do believe in the born-again experience. I believe that there was a time when, that you were, when you were lost and then you were found. You were unconverted, then converted. Unsaved, then saved. By repentance and faith, you became a believer from being an unbeliever, a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe it happens in a moment of time. And no doubt many of you can remember when you became a Christian praying, re repenting, and asking God to save you. But then, why the doubts? Well, at least for me. The fears. The wondering. The lack of assurance. I struggled greatly. <laughs> I lived a fairly good life by most measures uh, uh, through high school, graduated, went to a military academy, but I left there to go to that Baptist college, listen, to prepare for ministry. And all along, I questioned my conversion. Was it really enough? Did I really mean it? Did I say the right words? Did Jesus really come into my heart and save me, even if I couldn't remember the details of the event? You see, I didn't have the dramatic conversion from a life of drugs, girls, and rock and roll. I was simply lost and asked Jesus to save me. Here's my question, did he? I often doubted. In fact, I can remember one time after a significant period of doubt in Bible college, preparing for ministry after one of those Sunday evening services, going through the process yet again just to be sure, asking Jesus to save me, even being baptized again. I thought, good, now I know for sure and the doubts will forever be erased. And I guess I can say I have since trusted Jesus for my eternal salvation because I can remember more clearly kneeling in my living room. I can remember my prayer of confession, my subsequent, uh, my subsequent bapti baptism, number two, the, the, the date in the front of my Bible that still sits on my bookshelf in my office. Again, I am not condemning a process. Undoubtedly, many of you share uh, similar conversion stories. Uh, uh, prayers of repentance, baptism, and, and following Jesus. So where then does the assurance come in? D did, did you know the Bible, while, while teaching repentance and faith, while teaching born, uh, uh, conversion, being saved, being born again, while teaching assurance of salvation, did you know that it never points to a spiritual birthday as an assurance of salvation? You prayed a prayer. You said the right words. Now, again, I believe that that is important, but where then does the assurance come from? J.D. Greer, president of the Southern Baptist Convention and, and pastor of Summit Church right here in our own state in Raleigh, struggled as a young believer with doubt. He, he says that he was saved when he was about four, beat me by six years. But, that, but then made multiple professions of faith through his child and teen years. In fact, he says that he was baptized four times, <laughs> twice as many as me. He wrote a book in 2013 to deal with the issue, interestingly titled, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. The, the book is subtitled, How to Know for Sure That You're Saved, Audacious Claim. How to Know for Sure.
Wouldn't you like that? In an article for Ligonier Magazine uh, about the book, he wrote, if there were a world record for the, quote, number of times asking Jesus into your heart, I'm pretty sure I would hold it. I probably prayed the prayer more than 5,000 times. Every time uh, was sincere, but I, never, uh, I was never quite sure I had gotten it right. Had I really been sorry enough for my sin that time around? So I would pray the sinner's prayer again and again and again and maybe get baptized again. Every student camp, every spring revival, rinse and repeat. Has that been your experience? Have you ever doubted? Ever felt like that? Asked Jesus repeatedly into your heart? Did it again just to make sure? You're not alone. John actually wrote 1 John to a group of people, churches, if you will, who were facing this challenge in a little different way, but still this challenge. How do I know that I believe the right things in the right way? How do I know that I know God? How do I know that I'm saved? You see, there, there was a group of people who had left the church claiming to have a a superior knowledge, a, a specific experience that gave them confidence that they could say, I know God and I alone. So those who remained in the church were understandably troubled. Do I really belong to God? Am I His? So John writes. <laughs> Indeed, he did tell us the purpose for writing the letter and Chapter 5, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Here's the question. What were the things that he wrote? Is this just a verse to be wrenched out of its context to give some weak assurance? You prayed a prayer, so hey, you're in? Or did he tell us how we can know? I think that he did. We have seen that John writes to give Three ways, dare I call them three tests, by which you can know that you have eternal life. How you can have assurance of salvation. Pass these tests. We've called them the theological or the doctrinal tests, the relational or the social tests, or the, and, and the moral tests. The theological test goes like this. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came in the flesh, and in the flesh lived a, a perfect life to, to die as a substitutionary propitiation, expiation for sinners. You must believe in Jesus that He came. We just sang about it all morning. You must believe that Jesus came and completed His work on the cross and resurrection. The, the relational test goes like this. Having believed, you are born again, the first time physically into a physical family, the second time spiritually into a spiritual family, born actually into the family of God. And so you must, you must love your other family members. Love is actually a major theme in this book, and we arrive at its first use today. In fact, did you know that John uses the noun or the verb for love 52 times in these three letters, which comprise seven chapters? 52 times. That is enormous. But it isn't just this mealy, sentimental love by which it doesn't matter to us what people do or how they live. It is a faithful love that follows Christ and loves God's people. He's going to tell us that over and over again. 
Moral test goes like this, having confessed your sin and believed in Jesus as God in the flesh, Lord of your life. We all know that if we used to knock on doors, if we know the Romans road, right? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then, then you will be saved. If you, if you have confessed your sins and believed in Jesus as God in the flesh, Lord of your life, then you must then pursue morality. You must act like a follower of Christ. The three tests. Now, I want you to think of each of those. The first test is required to produce salvation. To produce salvation. You, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ given by the Father to die and be raised again for the sins of His people. For, for your sins. You, you, you must believe that. The second and third tests are not required to produce salvation. They are, however, required to prove salvation. To give you assurance. You must pursue holiness. You must love God's people. They are tests John gives so that we can know that we have eternal life. I want to be clear. You do not obey his commands. Uh, obey his commands. You do not love other Christians in order to be saved. You do so because you have been saved. You must pass these tests. Now, l- listen, the first test produces salvation. And and there may or may not be a period of time after. Remember the thief on the cross. He confessed Jesus right there on the cross, died that day, and Jesus looked at him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. But inasmuch as God gives you breath, we must seek to obey and we must love his people. These are non-negotiable. Some have called these three tests the tests of faith, love, and ethics. You have faith in Jesus as the light of the world. You love because he first loved us, and then you walk in the light as he is in the light. So, having introduced the letter in in the first chapter in which he implies these truths, we arrive at the first clearly articulated, the first of the three tests today. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and following say this, By this we know that we have come to know him. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't wouldn't you like to know that you've come to know Him? By this we know that we have come to know Him if we obey or keep His commandments. What if I don't? The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. That's a little strong, John. The truth is not in us. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he, that is Jesus, walked. The moral test. John has just spent the last few verses uh, lending balance to this idea of sin. Sin... Incredibly, in the life of the believer. 
of, of having sin and yet pursuing holiness, of not sinning. You'll remember the, the, the second half of chapter 1, he tipped his hat to these false teachers and, and what they were saying. This is the message that we heard from the beginning, that God is light, in him is no darkness at all. So if we say, and he says that three times, here in this new text, he says, um, uh, he, he says the words, the one who says, the one who says, he says in verse 4, verse 6, and verse 9, again, he's using kind of the same structure. If we say, as the false teachers who had left the church were presumably saying, if we say we have fellowship with this God who is light, but walk in darkness, we, we put, betray ourselves. We lie. And we don't do the truth. Remember, truth is not just something that we know up here. Truth is something that we do. Lending balance. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving. Don't miss this. We are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, the one who has said that all have sinned. Liar, truth's not in you. His word is not in us. Then John writes in the next verses, as we saw last week, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That, that's meant to be taken seriously. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Please notice, again, the balance he is bringing. He calls us to walk um, in the light if we claim to have fellowship with God. He calls us to pursue holiness. He actually calls us to not sin. But if anyone sins, because he just said we cannot say we have no sin, if anyone sins, we still have Jesus. We still have the righteous one. Our advocate before the Father, the propitiation, the expiation for our sin. This was not, I made this point very strongly last week. This was not condoning sin. This was not permitting sin. He simply says, when we sin, we have a gracious Christ to intercede for us through his faithful work, and we find ongoing forgiveness. That's all a bit confusing. I mean, where does this leave us? Forgiven sinners who just continue to live lives of sin because we've been saved? Many do that, don't they? I prayed a prayer, I'm in, right? Is that, is that okay? We're born again. Our, our, our eternity is secure. Eternal security, I believe in that. This is apparently in some way what the false teachers were saying. Later Gnosticism said that all that is matter, all that is physical is evil, and only the spiritual, they divided everything, is good between physical and spiritual. Only the spiritual is good, and since they had this spiritual, a special spiritual connection with God, hey, I'm good, right? So they could live lives of sin. In fact, the physical was evil, have to live lives of sin, so sin without repercussion, sin with impunity, it was no doubt tempting, it was at least confusing, and it has challenged the church of Jesus Christ today. As we talked about a few weeks ago, many are believing the gospel, at least they get out of eternal jail part free. But we are just sinners saved by grace, and at the end of the day, I'm still saved. My eternity is secure. God will forgive me. It's his job. And so as a result, many cannot tell the difference in the lives of believers and unbelievers. 
survey after survey reveal there is little to no difference in the attitudes and actions of believers as compared to unbelievers. Is that okay? That people can't tell the difference between us and out there? Is that okay? I'm saved. I'm in. I'm okay, right? Again, J.D. Greer writes, countless people in our churches today are genuinely saved, but they just can't seem to gain any assurance about their salvation. The opposite is the case, too. Because of some childhood prayers, tens of thousands, because of some childhood prayer, tens of thousands of people are absolutely certain of a salvation they do not possess. This is of grave concern to me. Because some of you prayed a prayer when you were a child and you're convinced you're saved even though you live like the devil. And my clear purpose today is to invite you to be saved. How can JD say that? Because they didn't pass the tests. Because they don't live for Jesus. John here clearly begins his first argument, his first test with this outline. Assurance of knowing God, notice, comes from keeping his commands. Assurance of the love of God comes from keeping his word. Assurance of abiding in God comes from walking as Jesus did. You want assurance that you're saved? Then keep his commands, keep his word, walk like Jesus. Don't miss that. Salvation comes from it. Tune in. Salvation comes from a past confession, but assurance of salvation comes not from a past profession, but a present way of life. In fact, John takes it one startling step, startling step further. Not only is there no assurance of salvation if there is not a corresponding present way of life, There is no past true confession if that confession has not changed your life. I know that that is troubling. Some of you will say, you're not preaching grace. Yes, I am. I am preaching biblical grace that changes lives. John starts by saying, by this we know that we have come to know him To know God, to know Him is to be in covenant relationship with Him. It's not just to know some facts about God, to know some doctrines, to know some theological truth. It is to be in relationship with Him. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. By this is looking forward. You can have assurance of salvation if you keep His commandments. John is taking the battle to the false teachers. They claim some special spiritual knowledge of God outside Scripture. John says, on the contrary, we know that we have come to know Him using their word. He's going to use this word know or knowledge several times in these letters. We we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments found in Scripture. I want to say very clearly, you cannot know God apart from God's special revelation. That is through His word and through His Son. We hear a lot today about dreams being given to people in the Middle East. I, listen, I, I pray and I hope and I trust that that is true. But if dreams are given, they are given about Jesus, 
that are biblically consistent. It's the only way to be saved. He uses the word no twice in that sentence with two different verb tenses. Two different verb tenses that are critically important. The first we know is in the present tense. Listen up. We can know right now, presently, right there where you sit, we can have present assurance that that we know God. Away with the doubts, away with the wondering, away with the fear, you can know right now. How? We, we know right now that we have come to know him. There's the second time. It's in the perfect tense, which speaks, it's one of my favorite tenses in the Greek. It speaks of a past action with ongoing effect. It is a great tense, something that happened in the past. I don't know, maybe a confession of faith with ongoing effect to the present. We can know right now that we have come to know him in the past If the ongoing effect to the present is this, we are seeking to obey his commands. I didn't say that we're perfect. I said that we are, with everything in us, seeking to obey his commands. Lots of discussion about what these commands are. Most agree they are not the Old Testament law. He would have used a different word. He's likely speaking of all that Jesus taught. Remember the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them what? All that I have commanded you. That's what it is. I'm not going to review all that Jesus commanded. I will just tell you this. It's found in the New Testament. 24 years and counting were in the New Testament. So I'm not going to review all of that. But he goes, he tells us a little bit more. Tips his hat a little bit more in chapter 3, verse 23. and says this. This is his commandment. Here it is. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, uh, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he commanded us. So at the very least, his commandment, as identified by John, are, here you go, that we believe in Jesus and we love one another. The other two tests, you got to do that. you got to believe in Jesus, who he is and what he came to do, and you've got to love God's people. Is it that simple? Yeah, because when Jesus was asked, what is the first and greatest commandment? He said, it's this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Paul says in Romans chapter 8, this is the summation of the whole law. Love. Because you love, you'll do what is right. He says it over and over in this book, many different ways. My hope is that we come to the end of this book and that we love Jesus more. And that we love his people more. I want, I want people to say of Alliance Bible Fellowship, not that we're politically active, that's what they're saying now, that's not what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is they look at Alliance Bible Fellowship and they say, my, how those people at Alliance love each other. And we love him so much that we desire, indeed, we have a passion to obey his commands and to be like him. If we don't, verse 4 The one who says, I have come to know him, same word, same tense, perfect tense, does not keep his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him. It's basically the same thing he said in chapter 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with God, yet walk in darkness, we lie. And we don't do the truth. This time, he's a bit stronger. If you don't keep his commandments, you are a liar. 
and the truth is not in you. What is the lie? Simply that you, that you know him. I, I know God, but you don't live like it. Lie. Stronger. Liar. This is the challenge I mentioned earlier. It is not that you haven't been a good Christian. Rather, you have not been a Christian at all. troubling. It's, it's a bit stronger. Before he said, you're lying, now he's calling you a liar. This, that's brutal. That's harsh. So, so some people feel the need to explain John's personality. <laughs> Remember, he's one of the sons of thunder. Remember that time he wanted to call down fire from heaven and consume a Samaritan village? But his, his words are actually not that harsh, not any more harsh than when Jesus said, you're nothing but a bunch of brood of vipers. You're of your father, the devil. Listen, if someone commits murder, what do we call them? A murderer. If someone commits adultery, what do we call them? An adulterer. If someone lies, what do we call them? John says, you're a liar. I, I, I know God even though I don't follow his commands. You are a liar. Strong, yes. True, Yes. But I don't want you to miss the assurance that John is offering. By keeping his commands, the, the word speaks of guarding or obeying, observing his commands. You can know right now that you have come to know him. You, again, you no longer need to doubt or wonder or worry. You can stop asking Jesus into your heart. If you have as the characteristic of your life the desire, even the passion to obey Jesus, listen, I say to you by the authority of the word of God, you know him. This is great news. Second point, verse 5, very quickly. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Again, we see this idea of keeping or guarding or obeying, this time God's word synonymous with commandments. And the one who does that, who seeks to keep God's word, the love of God, has truly been perfected. Lots of discussion about this love of God. God's love. Is it subjective or objective? As I said earlier, love is a key theme in this book. This is its first use. Is this God's love for His people or is it His people's love for God? A strong argument can be made for both, and commentaries were equally divided. John 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Let that sink in. Obedience to His commands is directly tied to your love for Jesus. I've said it this way before. When you sin, anytime you sin, at that moment, you love yourself and your sin more than you love Jesus. Jesus, I love you. I love me more. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey. Here John says, if you keep or obey his word, then his love is perfected, that is, it is matured in you. It's not suggesting, again, that you will be perfect. It's suggesting that your love for God is maturing, growing, being perfected, which suggests this lifelong process of sanctification. We grow in our love for God. As we do that, we will grow to be more like Jesus. Hallelujah. But this could also be speaking of his love for us. His love for us is perfected or matured 
by transforming grace. God's love for us perfects us in transforming grace. What does that mean? It means we see God's love for us perfected when we are maturing in grace and obedience. Why do some say it that way? Because this, these same two words are used in chapter 4. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the idea is we love both God and one another because he first loved us. And his transforming love and grace is perfected in us when we grow in our love for him and we grow in our love for one another. That's what I want. That's what I want as we study through this. But I want our love for Jesus. I want our love for one another to grow. So which one is it? Objective, subjective? I don't know. But the truth is, we are unable to love rightly either God or others without His love being perfected in us, and that comes through true conversion, evidenced by keeping His Word. Last point, conclusion. The last part of verse 5, pointing forward to verse 6, by this we know, right now, you can know that you are in Him. The one who says He abides in Him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he, that is Jesus, walked. Be like Jesus. It's being in him and being in Christ is found throughout Paul's letters. It is the idea of being in Christ and Christ being in us by his spirit through the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is evidenced in our lives, and we produce much fruit. Remember the parable of sowers? It falls on good soil and produces much fruit. John chapter 15, abide in me. Jesus speaking to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Well, well, what if we're not abiding in him? Then you're not bearing fruit. And if you're not abiding in him, then you are cut off and thrown into the fire. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's the point. Those who are in Christ, who abide in Christ, will walk as Jesus walked, producing much fruit. I finish with this. I have done many funerals of people who once prayed a prayer. The family desperately, family of the deceased, desperately wants me to know that. When they were 10, they, they prayed a prayer, they were saved. Oh, they walked away and never really lived for Christ, but they prayed the sinner's prayer. I was there. I heard it. So they're good, right? And I hope that they are. But I am always concerned when someone has to convince me that a loved one was once saved. Who are they trying to convince, me or themselves? Can I encourage you this morning to live for Christ? Live for Jesus. Walk like he did.
when I do your funeral or you do mine, I want to see Christ formed in you. I want to see Christ formed in me. I want to say of you, I want you to say of me, for him to live was Christ. For her to live was Christ. If we could ask the person who knows you best, would they say that of you right now?